David's child dies. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he, when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child had died, you arose and ate. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Shall I, go to, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. And now the last verse in chapter 18. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. We only have two weeks left in our series on the life of David, which is the oldest and the long, not the oldest, but the longest recorded history of anyone in ancient literature. And there comes a time in any parent's life where they're less known for who they are themselves and more known as someone's dad or someone's mom. And that's what we have with David in these last two weeks. There's a lot of 2 Samuel left here. There's, there's like 10 chapters or more uh, left here uh, of 2 Samuel. And it almost is completely not about David. It's almost all about David's kids. You see, David has kind of reached this point in life where his life is more about the children than they are about him. David's family life was really messed up. Really messed up. If there's anything that we can gain from an encouraging thing is that you can be a man after God's own heart and have a really messed up family. Uh, anybody, anybody resonate with that? Anybody from a really messed up family? You can be a, guy, a, a man or a woman after God's own heart and be a part of a really messed up family. The hard thing with David is, is he was one of the main reasons why the family was really messed up. If you look at David's family life, he has at at least eight different wives, never condoned in Scripture. God never says, go take eight wives, David. That's not a smart thing to do. God made marriage for one man and one woman to be enjoyed, to, to represent his relationship with his church, his people. So he has eight wives, at least ten sons that we hear about, that we read about. 
And we only read about one daughter, but the assumption is that he has more daughters as well. So he has a lot of kids, a lot of wives, and his family's really messed up. When you look at each of his children, uh, they all are kind of messed up folks. They've kind of got their own struggles. Uh, Some are really rebellious. Some are really lustful. Some are just really uh, like David to a fault. Uh, if, if anybody is like their parents to a fault or they have kids, they know that they can be like you to a fault in a lot of different ways. And that's what we see with David. And so what I want to do today is as we round the corner on this Life of David series that we're doing, we're going to be starting a new series in two weeks when we meet um, outdoors in, in Sudbury. Uh, but as we round the corner on this Life of David series, I want to just look at David's relationship with his children. I didn't want to take a week to look at each child because I felt like I might be dragging it out um, if, I, if I did that, but I felt like I could handle most of them in one message, and it would be a really helpful word for us today. So I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, and I'm going to look at multiple different passages kind of in the same area of, of the same book, so it's, it's still look at, letting the Bible guide us here, but I'm looking at multiple different passages here, and um, I know that there's going to be a lot of parenting lessons today, and over half of our church, if not two-thirds of our church, uh, are not parents. There's a lot of folks who aren't parents in our church. We've got a lot of single folks around. But this is still an encouraging message to you. Let me, let me tell you why. One, most of you probably still want to have kids. Most people want to be parents. And let me tell you, you've got to prepare if you want to be a successful parent. There's a lot of preparation that needs to go, do- go down. So you, need, you can listen and observe and learn from some of David's mistakes and my mistakes along the way. In addition to that, if you're a part of the family of God, you have brothers and sisters who are parents who need your help. They need your help in parenting their kids and raising their kids. We need help with COA kids as we get that launch. We're hopefully having COA kids. Uh, we will be having COA kids uh, on May 2nd. Um, we need help with that if anybody's interested. We need help raising our kids, but we also just need help in that we need people that can listen and understand how difficult it can be to be responsible for another human being, if not multiple. We need people to pray for us. In addition to this, many of these lessons that we have about David's parenting apply to all kinds of different areas in life. They apply all over the place. So you, don't hear the, you, you can't hear this sermon and think it's just parenting. I don't need to listen. But it really, if you listen carefully, God's Word will challenge you today in other areas of your life as well. So I want to look at three principles of parenting as we look at David's relationship with his children. And I think that these three principles, if I was, honestly, if I was to boil down parenting to three principles, I would say that this, these three would be pretty good. And so the first parenting principle that I want to gather here is your kids belong to the Lord. You have to trust him with them. Your children belong to the Lord. You have to trust God with them. You can honestly fill the blank, fill, fill whatever you want into the blank here. Your job belongs to the Lord. Your house belongs to the Lord. Your safety, your future belong to the Lord. Our kids in particular, though, oftentimes feel like, not like they're something that we don't have control of. They feel like an extension of ourselves, oftentimes, as a parent, especially when they're little. And that's why you have these dads at 
Little League games, just absolutely losing their mind because they're reliving the glory days through their little child. That's an extension of them. Our children don't belong to us. Our children, which there are many of here, belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. They're human beings, and we can trust God. Let me just break this down for you a little bit. Our children's lives belong to the Lord. Parents receive that. Their health belongs to the Lord. Their future belongs to the Lord. Their souls belong to the Lord. Last week, we saw Nathan confront David and discuss David's sin with him about how he took another man's wife and killed that man. And David is confronted with his own sin and he repents. And then out of that, the child that David conceived with Bathsheba is born and he's told that the child is going to die. He has this newborn infant and he's told that the infant is going to die. I cannot imagine a more severe sting of loss than the loss of a child. It's just something that parents aren't supposed to do. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. It's supposed to go the other way around. And here's how David responded as he heard that his child was going to die. We read this earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. He just laid on the ground, nor did he eat food with him. And so David gets this news that he's, his child's going to die, and what does he do? He starts praying. He starts fasting, and he hits the ground. David's emo- emotional anguish crushes him physically. He was stuck on the ground. Have you ever been so stricken with grief to where you were laid out on the ground. Here's something about life. If you live long enough, and there's something to be said about dying young. Also, that's a totally different sermon, but if you live long enough, you will be pushed onto the ground with grief at some point in your life. It's part of the normal human experience. I can only think of one time in my life when I saw someone this distraught, this stricken with grief. I was a high schooler, and uh, my mom worked at the courthouse. She, she managed the payroll for, uh, for the county. And so she worked at the courthouse, and one of her friends there, she was probably, you know, I'm in high school. I don't know how old people are. Uh, you, you don't pay, you know, when, when you're in high school, it's like anybody over 20 is old, all right? Uh, so she was probably like late 20s, early 30s. I don't know. Uh, she could have been 40. I have no idea. Um, but she seemed like younger than my mom. And um, I remember I was in there after school waiting to go home because uh, a single mom and, and I would go to her work oftentimes to, to wait before I got a car. And this woman received the news that her husband had been in a, in a car accident and died on impact. And the scream that I heard that day, and none of us knew what was happening, but it'll never leave my ears. She was stricken with grief 
I, I think she just fell down screaming at that moment to receive that kind of news. Those moments in life where even when someone comes alongside you and picks you up, you just fall right back down. That's what David's in the middle of. He is stricken with grief. No one can prepare you to lose a child. I'm not even going to try. It doesn't matter how many sermons you hear on that. No one can really prepare you for those moments of grief to where they won't happen. You're still going to be stricken in this way. But it's how you handle it, how you walk through it. When the, boys, when the boy dies, David's servants are afraid to even tell him. They're afraid to tell him that he's dead. You know, he's been fasting and praying, asking that the Lord would heal him, but he didn't. They're afraid that when they tell him, actually they're afraid that David will hurt himself. That when they tell him, he'll hurt himself. And, but he figures it out. He, he hears them chatting. And uh, so he, he asks them, is the child dead? And they say he is. And at that moment, David gets up off the ground, picks himself up, cleans himself up, and goes to worship God. And then he goes and sits at the table, and they don't even bring him food. They're so confused about what's happening right now, because they're thinking this should be the, the apex of his grief, and he has to ask for food. The king goes and sits at his table. He's like, can someone bring me a meal already? What are you doing? So he asks for food, and they bring him food. And his servants are like, what is going on? They are so confused. They say, why are you acting so normal now that he's dead? We thought that you were going to lose it. And David responds. And how he responds is, is incredible. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. God hears our prayers, friends. And he changes his plans based upon our prayers. That's the way that God's sovereignty works. He is in charge, but he uses our prayers as the means by which he accomplishes his purposes. So David is praying, but God did not answer his prayer in the way that he wanted. And so, verse 23 says, But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David recognizes that his child belongs to the Lord. And that means that he's going to seek the Lord on behalf of his child. But then when it's out of his control, he trusts the Lord. He's going to seek the Lord, but when it's out of his control, he's just going to trust him. David says, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David believes that he's going to be reunited with his child one day. One of the hardest questions that anyone can ask me as a pastor, and it's just because it's one of those that the Bible's not very clear on, is what happens to babies after they die. The Bible doesn't explicitly say anywhere what happens. It, it doesn't, but there's a lot of implicit direction. And if you're interested in this topic, there's a long article about all the implicit ways that uh, the Bible talks about children after they die. But this verse is probably the most explicit out of any verse in the entire Bible. Because David certainly believes that he will be reunited with his child in heaven. He sees that. He believes that. He trusts in that goodness. And that certainly matches up with what we know about God's goodness and his fairness and his justness. It's good enough for me. Here's a reality that we need to consider today. Anything that you love 
can be taken from you. You can lose anything that you love. And so we have to trust the Lord with everything. We trust the Lord with our children, but we trust the Lord with our health, with our families, with our own lives, with everything. And another thing that we need to realize is that even when terrible things do happen, and they do happen, God is still in charge. He knows what he's doing. We often just don't have the vantage point. The vantage point here, although David could not see it, the author hides it in here for us so that we can see it. Because God does something really amazing that we, that David did not see. In his mourning, he goes and is comforted with his wife, and they conceive a child. And the author tells us who that child is, and it's Solomon, who we know is the ancestor of Jesus. And it's in his moment of deepest despair and grief when David conceives the child that would, bear, that would be the king and the Messiah of the world. Sometimes we just don't have the vantage point to see everything that God is doing. But he has a way and he has a plan that we cannot see. And we trust him with that. So the first parenting lesson is, your children belong to God, not to you. We have to trust him with them. And if you really believe that, it will help you sleep at night. It will help you sleep at night. The second lesson here is what your children most need from you is a relationship. What your children most need from you is a relationship. Who here today can say, you know, my parents just spent too much time trying to build a relationship with me? It's not something that we normally say. Oftentimes, we might say, you know, my parents spent too much time trying to teach me the rules or being hard on me, trying to give me discipline, and they didn't bother to build a relationship. And we look at David, that's what we see. That's what we see. He did not have a strong enough relationship with his children. I know too many people who decide they finally want to have a relationship with their kids once they turn 16 or even maybe 24, but it's like, if you didn't care about the kid up until that time, why would they think that you want to have a relationship with them now? You have to start those relationship building early, when they're three, when they're two, when they're one. You have to start the relationship early, build the relationship. Parenting is this dance between authority and influence. And by the time they're older, you want to be leaning more towards influence, which means that you need to lean more towards that relationship with your child and not just telling them the right and wrong rules. There is that in parenting. You do have to tell them the rules. You have to teach them right and wrong. But you need to lean on your influence, your relationship, because that's what will last after they're out of your home. David did not understand this. He's not winning any Dad of the Year awards. It seems like he's a pretty absent dad, honestly. He has so many children so many wives, a very demanding job. How could he be present? But at the end of his life, what's he worried about? His kids. That's what he's worried about. Now, once we finish this story of David's child dying, his newborn dying, the Bible goes right into a story that appears like it's about his son Amnon, but it's really about Absalom. If you look at the first of chapter 13, the next chapter, first verse, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. So the author frames this, and it's not about Amnon, it's about Absalom. And so it's basically saying, we're starting the story of Absalom now, and that story's going to take us about 10 chapters. <laughs> it's a long story of Absalom, David's son. It's, it, Absalom is David's third-born son. Amnon is David's first-born son. 
And these are some rebellious kids that we have here. If you think your kids are rebellious or if you were rebellious as a kid, I don't think that you took it to this extreme. So Amnon, uh, David's firstborn, he, he plotted and raped his, his sister, uh, Tamar. Not a good thing. And that's Absalom's real sister, his full sister. Lots of half-sisters going on here when you have so many wives. And um, again, none of this is condoned by God. This is just descriptive, not prescriptive from the Bible. It's telling us what actually happened. Um, it's not saying this is the way that we should model our lives. Um, after Amnon did that, what Absalom did is plotted to kill him mercilessly in cold blood for two whole years before he executed his plan. I mean, it was a long plot. After that happened, David sent him out of the land. He had to live outside of Israel for three years. Absalom, his son, probably his favorite son, had to live outside of Israel for three years. And when he did eventually get to come back, David shunned him. David did not let him come back into the family. He just let him come back into the land. He did not have open parental arms saying, come here, my son, I've missed you. I'm so glad that you've returned from your rebellion. Let's restart this thing. No, he said, you stay over there. Don't talk to me. I don't know that Absalom and David spoke after this point. If they did, if you know that in the Bible, show it to me. Um, I could not find at any point after Absalom's murder of his brother Amnon where David and Absalom spoke to one another. And for the next 10 years, <laughs> they're at odds with each other. Absalom is out to get his father's throne. In fact, David actually ends up on the like, losing side for a while. He has to go back into the wilderness and hide as he did when he was hiding from King Saul back in the day. And Absalom and, and David, they fight it out. They eventually are fighting a battle. And David does get the upper hand. And even though he's told his generals not to kill Absalom, his son, he still has a soft spot for Absalom. He still wants to be reunited with him, even though he, he doesn't know have the words to say it to Absalom. David's generals kill Absalom mercilessly, brutally, mercilessly kill him. And um, when David finds out about it, he just lets out this this verse of lament that you can't hear in many other places. Again, David, David loves his children. Verse, chapter 18, verse 33, it says this. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. When you see ancient literature repeat a name like that, it carries this deep emotional weight. When, God approaches, when Jesus approaches Martha, he says, Martha, Martha. Here, he's saying, Absalom, oh, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David loves his son deeply. Your deepest regret in life would be the loss of a relationship with children. If you lose relationship with your children, there's nothing that you can regret more than that. Maybe relationship with your father, with God, Regret that more? I might be speaking hyperbolically here, but you get what I'm saying. You hear the regret in his voice. My guess is that those are the words that Absalom longed to hear and was never told. It was too late. Our children need our attention and they need relationship. 
Here's something that you need to know. Everyone here, especially if you have kids, but even if you don't have kids, your children will rebel. All people are rebels. We have a rebellious heart. Your children will rebel. The human heart's rebellious. When your kids are young, you like to deny this and think they're a perfect little angel. They're not, okay? They're going to rebel. Compare David as a father to the father in the story of the parable of the prodigal son. They both have rebellious children. Their children both return to the land. David shuns his son, turns a cold shoulder, doesn't want to restore relationship. The story of the prodigal son, where the father represents God, our father. He's been going out every day looking for his son, waiting on his rebellious son to come home. And when he does start to come home, he doesn't say, I told you so. Why'd you go and take your inheritance and do that? He doesn't condemn him. What he does is he runs for him, and he gives him a hug, and he puts a ring on his finger, and he says, kill the fattened calf, we're having a party. He does it, he's so elaborate that the, the son's older brother is like, what are you doing? I've been following the rules. What about me? God welcomes back rebels. And when our children rebel, if we have that relationship to welcome them back as God has welcomed us back, because I can't tell you how many times I've rebelled against God and he's held out open arms to me. That is what we're called to embody to our children. So first, your children belong to the Lord. Second, your children will rebel and you need a relationship with them, that your influence is more important than authority. And third, your children will repeat your sins. So watch your, your life and doctrine closely. Your, your children will repeat your sins, so watch your life closely. I wish I'd gotten this before I had kids. Because now, at this point, my kids are too much like me. Um, I wish I could have been a godlier man. But you don't know what you don't know. I wish I could have been a godlier man when I first had my kids. And so if you haven't had kids yet, now's the time. You've got to invest in your own spiritual life. Have you ever seen the people, like, in the park? I don't know if they're doing this right now. Maybe someone can tell me. I haven't been in, in downtown in the Common in a while. But they have, like, the character drawing, uh, the caricature drawing, where you sit down, and the artist looks at you, and he finds the ugliest features in your face and makes them very large. It's like not something that, I don't know why anybody would do that, you know? Like, why, why would you just, this is like signing up for a roast, you know? It's like, I'm not doing that. I've never done one. But I, but I have one to share with you. Their names are Kennedy and Shepard, and they're right back there. They're a lot like me. For better and for worse, they're great kids, really great kids. But our children repeat us and imitate us more than what we care to think about. So let's look at David. What about his children? Well, we see the cold and connivingness of Absalom. David's cold and conniving, sending Uriah to his death. But look at his son Solomon, this golden child, even the best of his children. What does Solomon do? David had eight wives and lots of mistresses, concubines. Solomon has 300 wives and 700 mistresses. Solomon is repeating the sins of his father, but he's not just repeating them. He's, he's blowing them out the water. Our children will repeat our sin patterns. David repeated his own father's sin patterns. 
What we know about David's dad, Jesse, is that he was not very warm toward David. If you remember way back at the beginning of this series, the prophet Samuel comes to anoint a new king at Jesse's house. David has seven brothers. And his dad lines all of his brothers out and says, here are all my sons, pick one for the king. While David is out back taking care of the sheep, getting the cold shoulder. And then when his sons get sent to, to war, David, not allowed. He's got to just be the, the cheese delivery man. He's taking the cheese to his, to his sons out on the battlefield, to his brothers. David is treated coolly, coldly by his father. Children imitate the sins of their father. As Jay-Z puts it, that great poet, he says, sins of a father make life ten times harder. But friends, I want to tell you this, and this is good news. You can break the chain. That oftentimes your children become who they are in spite of you, and we become who we are in spite of our parents. I'm living proof. This is a little too fresh for me to get into uh, thoroughly here. Uh, my dad died about two months ago, and we weren't very close. Um, and if I were to repeat many of the sin patterns, I would have already been gone from my children's lives. But God has delivered me, and he's broken the chain. He's broken the chain. The best advice I can give any of us, any of us who are preparing to have kids or think we might or are already parents, is you must become the person you want your children to become. You must become, if you want better for your kids, you must become the person you want them to become. Because character is usually learned by imitation. Character is learned through a rubbing of shoulders, if you will. If you notice your children lack patience, observe your patience level. If you want to work on your child's character, work on your own character. Your godliness is so much more powerful than the newest parenting technique or strategy. Paul puts this in a different way. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 he really, I think this is summarizing discipleship in general, because that's what we're trying to do with our kids is disciple them. What he says is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is discipleship. It's influence. Discipleship is best done through strong, loving relationships and character imitation. This is what all of us are called to. We all want to help people become gospel people, which means that we need to become gospel people to have influence on them. Allow your life to be imitatable, my friends. Here's the best way to do this, and it's going to require so much courage, and I challenge you to find someone to do this. Find someone you can trust, who you have a relationship with. If you don't have that person, step one is to find someone that you can develop that trusting relationship with. But find someone that, even though it's scary, you feel like you can trust them and say, what do you see in me? Where are my blind spots? What do you wish I understood about God's grace? What's it really like to be with me? How do, you, how do you pray for me? How should I be praying for myself? We need those thick relationships to get there. I have a secret for you, friends. It's this. When it comes to a parenting, no one feels like a success. No one has got this. 
I know you look around, you, watch, you look at Instagram, there's these Instagram parents that have uh, uh, doctorate degrees in psychology, and they really get parenting. They don't, okay? They don't. They lose it with their kids too. When it comes to parenting, no one knows what they're talking about. And we need God's grace. When it comes to parenting, we're all failures. When it comes to any area of life, we're all failures. You are a failure. <laughs> you are a failure. Let that ru- uh, ring in for just a minute. David, utter failure as a parent. Utter failure. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as a parent? You could lose a child. You could have your child hate you and try to kill you. You could have a child that becomes a rapist. David had all of those things. All of those things happened to David. He was a failure. But yet he still rested and trusted in the love of God. He was still a man after God's own heart. God had grace with him and worked in spite of it. Your success as a parent, or as anything, doesn't determine your value as a human. Even when you blow it, God is still gracious to you. He sent his own son. Think about God's parental love for you and that he sent his own son to, to die as a sacrifice so that you might become a child of God. So that through faith in him, you might be welcomed into the family of God and might have a father who doesn't blow it. Because he's the only one. He is the ultimate father. God has grace for us in our failures. And he oftentimes uses our failures in spite of us. Our children become who they are based upon God's grace, not based upon necessarily what we did. And oftentimes it's in spite of what we did. If your kids never suffer and they never struggle, they don't develop the deep character that's required for life. God is such a good God who gives us his own son, who died on our behalf so that we might be called children of God. Each week we celebrate a sacred meal and we remember this truth that Jesus has paid for our sins, that he has died on our behalf, and that he's been risen victoriously. With this meal, we, we have these little cups. Uh, it's not our preferred aesthetic way to do it, but it's the pandemic way to do it. Uh, they're cute little things. If you're a Christian here today, we encourage you to receive this meal. You just have to peel the bread out first and then the juice. And if you're not sure where you are with God today, we just encourage you just maybe hold back this week and talk to us about how you can become a Christian or how you can make your relationship with God right, how you can become a child of God. And we'd love to have that conversation with you. You can email me or just hit me up afterwards if you're here in person, but if you're not, Fletcher at coachurch.org, C-O-A-H church.org. It's like coach without the second C. And we would be glad to walk you through those things. But as we respond to God this morning, let's stand and sing and respond with a full-hearted praise that he is a good, good father, that he is gracious to us. And let's receive this communion meal today. Uh, let us pray. Father, as we come to your table, we ask that we will be welcome at your table as a child. And that this family meal will be something that can brighten our spirits and our hope. God, we we ask that you'll be changing us from the inside out, helping us to experience your grace and your truth today. 
God, remind us of the ways that we've blown it, but also remind us of your grace, the way that you've loved us as your rebellious children, and the way that you've had grace with us time after time. And so, God, as we receive this meal, prepare our hearts. God, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you that they might come to a saving relationship with you today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.